Welcome to Intimate Interactions, where we discuss ways we share intimacy with our fellow humans. Sex, kink, non-monogamy, love, relationships, gangbangs, no intimacy topic is too taboo. Let's talk! Huge thanks to my outstanding Patreon supporters for making this possible. If you want the ad-free version, go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon to unlock premium content, including every episode of the back catalog, as well as a weekly podcast moving forward. Don't forget that you can also go to intimatepodcast.com, check out how to add the podcast there to your various devices, and you can click become a patron. Thanks so much for your support. It is greatly appreciated. Sex work is an often stigmatized and unloved profession, sometimes even by those who purchase its services. Yet, what's that stigma based on? Why does society degrade sex workers or relegate them to some underclass? Selena, a former junior engineer turned sex worker, is here to help us understand her small corner of that world and show us why some people decide to be sex workers and how sex work can be ethically run, even if it's currently illegal here. We discuss how legalities make sex work less safe and ultimately endanger the people they try to protect, even when those legalities apply to people around sex work and not technically to sex workers themselves. We chat a bit about herpes virus in this podcast, and I wanted to clarify that there are nine strains of herpes virus. Out of those nine strains, one of them is herpes simplex, which can be broken down into two substrains, HSV-1 and HSV-2. Both strains can cause facial or genital symptoms. However, other kinds of herpes virus that don't carry the same stigma would include Epstein-Barr virus that causes mono, cytomegalovirus, which causes pneumonia and mono as well. Um, to the point there's a whole range of different sicknesses where we would normally say if you're infected with one strain of herpes virus, it sucks you're sick, get well soon, and for another there would be all of this added shame. Let's make it simpler though, let's just consider the two strains of herpes virus that cause skin lesions, because maybe that's what the stigma is about. One strain of herpes virus is varicella zoster, it causes chicken pox in children and shingles in adults. The other strain is herpes simplex. We don't hold the same stigma for chickenpox that we do for herpes simplex. I think it's important to ask ourselves why. But even if all of that rationalization didn't convince you that the stigma around herpes simplex is unjustified, then let's start talking about who actually has herpes simplex. Wikipedia lists the infection rate as between 60% and 95% of all adults. In fact, there are so many asymptomatic carriers for HSV-1 and 2 that doctors are hesitant to test for herpes simplex, unless there's an active lesion, of course, as it can cause emotional distress when asymptomatic people learn they carry herpes. This is one of those cases where the stigma is usually worse than the disease. Many people only ever get one sore, and then it never returns. Other people get semi-regular cold sores. Either way, it's likely that you have HSV. And hey, if you have one kind of HSV, you're less likely to contract HSV of a different kind when you come into contact with it. Better news still, there's actually treatment for HSV now that suppresses and, for most people, eliminates symptoms. So I guess what I'm saying is let's live and let live. Let's treat each other with kindness. Let's destigmatize STIs. Let's just treat them like any other kind of infection. If you get sick, regardless of how you get sick or where you get sick, some infections are going to be chronic, some infections are going to be painful, and some infections are going to be really simple to treat and not a big deal. Typically, the ones we're most afraid of or shame the most in the, are in the last category. They're really simple to treat. 
Now, just because STIs aren't always harbingers of horror doesn't mean we shouldn't use protection. I still think the simplest way to prevent any kind of disease is the incredibly simple technology of just washing your hands. When it comes to STIs, it's good to just use a barrier, um, be it a male or female condom or dental dams or gloves. I'm a huge fan of gloves. I think gloves make a great disposal container. So when you have gloves on, what you basically do is you place all the items you want to dispose of on the inside, um, by which I mean in the palm of the glove. So while the glove's on, you essentially pick everything up you want disposed of in that, in that hand, and then you turn your glove inside out around all the material you're trying to dispose of. As a result, it ends up on the inside of the glove once your hand comes out of the clean side, and then you tie a knot, and then the only part of essentially sex that you're disposing of that is exposed is the clean surface of the glove. So let's talk resources. The PACE Society, P-A-C-E, in Vancouver is run by sex workers for sex workers. Before you decide to jump into a profession like sex work or if you're new to the profession of sex work and considering learning more about the various kinds, um, it's free to go and talk to people. Find out what your best fit is, what's the right fit for your wellness or the most lucrative. Get reviews of different agencies, ask about common problems. As a former webcam worker myself, I honestly feel a little understanding can save you money, can avoid a lot of emotional upset, and it's just a good idea. It's a good idea to review reputations, and as in any line of work, do yourself care and keep yourself happy and healthy. And if that's not working, talk to people about it. Links for resources in the description. While a lot of sex workers are happy to chat about this stuff for free, there are also more experienced sex workers who charge to consult about the industry or train you in specific skills like somatic bodywork. One such human is Aurora, someone who presented sessions at both Converge Cons I taught at. Her link is in the description as well. Please understand that Selena's perspective and lived experience about sex work is just one voice in a sea of voices. There are other stories, some similar, some with different conclusions about sex work. However, understanding one positive experience can help us understand what a positive model might look like and what services might be beneficial. It also seems clear to me that while we're not punishing sex workers directly, our punitive model isn't currently quote-unquote fixing the problem, so I think it's fair to say that at least some revision is necessary for the law to be in line with reality and for it to actually have a beneficial or optimal effect on society. So let's learn more with Selena here on Intimate Interactions. Do you want to focus? Which one do you want to do this session? Um, the sex work would be good. Sex work would be yeah. good. Let's do it. Um, Talking about sex work, that is. <laughs> uh, so, sure, let's start out. Tell, tell me a little bit more about, as I put my phone on silent, about um, <laughs> what sex work looks like for you today. Um, so I work for an agency, and that means I clock in, well, I send them, um, I send them a schedule every week, and that changes every week, which is really nice. And we have a studio downtown, and I'll buzz in, and then I will take clients for about six hours. We have six-hour shifts between 11 to 5, and then 5 to 11 p.m. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of fun. Um, usually, I, I have three to five clients a day, and I work three days a week. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> um, so... 
Why did you choose to get involved in sex work, and why do you think other sex workers like yourself choose to get involved? Um, I'm talking specifically about ones at agencies, because I acknowledge you can only speak from your lived experience. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different kinds of sex workers mm -hmm. out there, and there's the, the street walkers that, um, like, we have an agency in Vancouver called PACE, where it's sex workers for sex workers, right. and we're aimed at helping those kind of women because they're not there for choice, mm -hmm. whereas... Many of us who are choosing to go with an agency or, or go independent, a lot of us have university degrees and right. and it's it's a choice. For me, it's because I have so many friends from a sex positive community and mm -hmm. I really thought about that before I went into it. Like one of the things that you know, girls in this industry they fall into drugs or into bad spaces is because they can't talk about this, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If they do, their friends will ostracize them, they'll shame them. And I really made sure that I had a group of friends that I could reach out to and were okay with this. And then I could talk about my day. I could talk about the good things and the shitty things. And, um, you know, I worked for a year as an engineer. Yeah. And it was it was sucking my soul out. <laughs> it was I'm so not, sorry. It was not the place for me. And then I was doing sex work on the side. I um I had done sugaring, like sugar daddy, sugar baby. Got you. And um those are guys who are trying to get escorts for cheap. Right. It's yeah, they're not the most respect respectful guys and they're also not like they just text you all the time and they're trying to get things for free. Right, they're always using your time, your emotional energy. Yeah, and they're like, oh, I don't want to pay um, by the hour. I want to have a real connection with you. And, I'm and like, pay like a monthly allowance or something like that. Not even that. Okay. Not even that. Like, they'll, they'll give you like little gift cards of like $50 to $100. Wow. And it's not even real money. I don't even know how to say that. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. And, like, sometimes you'll get lucky, right? Sometimes you'll get lucky with a guy. Um, it was just way too much work. Right, and you I ended up doing all this work essentially for free. Yeah, because, like, you're messaging them and you're, like, pretending to be interested in them because there has to be a connection. Right, there's all this incentivization for you to show affection or be interested mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they would text me two hours before I had a class and be like, hey, do you want to hang out? And I'm like, I'm I'm at school. Yeah. You know, give me at least 24 hours notice so I could schedule you in. Yeah. I have a life outside of this. So right. when I found the agency on Backpages, I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Right. Like, I can just tell them when I want to work. I can schedule around that. And then I have, like, consistently, usually around four clients every time. And, it, like, the guys are so respectful, and I don't have to deal with all the business stuff. Right. And, and during engineering, that was such a big thing because I was working two jobs at the same time. Right. And and then I looked at it, and I was like, well, if I work three days a week as a sex worker, I'm getting the same amount of money as an engineer. Except you're working three days a week. Except I'm working three days a week, and um, I enjoy this so much more. And then I have so much time to, like, do all the other things that I want to do. Yeah. Um, you really paint a picture of ethical sex work that sounds like it's not what most people see or have portrayed for them, whether they're looking at the media, whether they're looking at um, just 
I guess, common misconceptions. So I'm really glad to have you on the show and be talking about this stuff. Oh, yay. I'm really glad to be on the show too. Yay. (laughs) So I've heard this work can be really emotionally intensive, and I'm interested to hear if you wanted to share any kind of self-grounding or self-care exercises you might do, or what your self-care regimen looks like. Yeah, um, this work is definitely, I would compare it to body work in a way. It's physically and emotionally exhausting to to a certain extent. It's like it, you're you're caring for somebody in a very intimate setting. Mm-hmm. And like that's one of the reasons why I only work 3 days a week. Right. It's like after that there's only so much like it gets to the point where I don't enjoy my work anymore. Right. And I want the quality to be there for my clients and I want to have fun and enjoy my work. Yeah. Um what's nice so so I live in a van and I I love that lifestyle and the studio is nice because I can work a night shift and then I can stay overnight so they have a bathtub um, the whole space is mine and I can do my oilation uh, self-massage things and then I can take a bath and yeah just relax that sounds like fantastic self-care mm-hmm. and because I can book it so that I do it once a week I have a regular schedule and like when I'm living in a home and it's always there and you don't you like start not thinking about it anymore right um, what else just a lot of like hanging out with friends um, just socializing and, and creating that network yeah what else and I don't know a lot of just slowing down. I find mm. in our nine to five kind of work, there's a way where the system is forcing us at a certain pace and being able to choose how fast my life is. And even just like for me, I only work at 11 o'clock and I know a lot of people don't have that privilege. And mm-hmm. for me, it's it's gorgeous. Like I don't book anything in the mornings. I have my coffee. I journal and enjoy the day yeah and then i come in super grounded and i'm able to hold space for my clients and have fun awesome that sounds great it also reminds me just the language you're using reminds me a lot of my counselor Hmm. um who talks about holding space and who talks about Mm -hmm. um enjoying her work because of what she knows her clients get out of it yeah Um, if it's not working for me then why is she there doing all this emotional labor it's like the money isn't almost really worth it Money isn't the thing yeah it's a combination of i need to feel respected so the money's important but i'm not doing it for the money Mm -hmm. and also it's really wonderful to see people happy and to see them get a really hard need to get met met yeah it there's only so much you can hide when you're lying in bed naked with another person yeah. <laughs> and yeah, the like kinds of emotional support that men will will just share with me or ask for is like I feel really privileged to be in that space. That's great. Mhm. Yeah, I can I can kind of try and imagine what that might be like. It's it's obviously really almost incomprehensible for me because I'm I typically sleep with women mm-hmm. and Anytime I've been doing anything resembling sex work, it's been camming. Mm-hmm. So there's some intimacy, but it's not lying in bed naked next to someone intimate. Yeah. It's a different kind of intimacy. But even in camming, there's a really intense push for, I want you to see me too. 
Mm-hmm. It's not just that they want to see you having sex with someone or with yourself or whatever. They want to be seen. There's mm-hmm. a deep-seated need to be seen and acknowledged. And when it comes to camming, honestly, like, it's... There are so many misconceptions about this line of work. <laughs> so many. <laughs> so many. And, and I definitely... I've definitely, and I, and I don't mean to, to say that, are, that the, those two lines of work are the same. They're just kind of in the general category in, of people yes. seem to hate them because they revolve around sex and fuck people. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, that leads actually very perfectly into the next question, which is, I know there's a lot of stigma <laughs> and I don't want to encourage any of that, but I know some audience is going to still want me to ask, do you feel safe at work? Which I feel like is so silly given what we've just talked about and mm. how clear of a picture I think you've painted um, about what your workplace looks like. But maybe, I don't know, you could say something about safety if you oh, would like. Oh gosh, well... We'll talk about stigma later. <laughs> So safety is definitely a big thing for us mm-hmm. because it's such an intimate kind of work. We want to be selective of the people who are mm. coming in. And the reason I went with an agency is, one, there's a kind of, how would you say? Pre-screening? Corporation behind you. Oh, okay. That the guys are really respectful because I can be like, oh, the agency is asking you to leave. Right. And they don't know who those people are, except that there are people behind me. It's not just a girl asking them to leave. Right. And then the other thing is, well, the other thing, they they kind of push sometimes like, oh, we're connected to the mafia. I don't think they are. But it's certainly intensely (laughs) scary for some. Yes. I've had guys, and I do out calls as well. So I do out calls outside of the agency, but I have to meet the person in the agency first. Okay. And some guys are hesitant to ask for my number or ask like if I do out calls because they're like, oh, what, what if the agency... Um, controls the girl and then she gets in trouble and then I get in trouble and right. I don't know who she's connected to and there's right. there's a kind of like because it's a gray area there's a bit of fear there right and we use it to our advantage right um, <coughs> I've definitely had some bad encounters when I started independent I tried independent first and because right. I didn't know the industry there's always the sketchy people oh man when I started with camming we got scammed out of hundreds of dollars mm-hmm. it was like you just aren't savvy to the types of shit that people are trying to pull yeah and because because it's a gray area there's not a lot of information about it mm-hmm. so you can't even do your research there's not even good enforcement if anything goes wrong that's the no. problem that we ran into when we got scammed out of money was there nobody wanted to support us because we were essentially doing sex work. So even Skype, um, to try and get this person's Skype account oh, disabled, God. they were just Skype like... Skype is not going to help. They weren't going to help at all. They weren't mm-hmm. even remotely interested. If anything, they were going to disable our account, yeah. which I thought was hilarious. So yeah. anyways, um, sorry, I don't mean to... Oh, <clears> that's, that's fine. ...to grab focus from you because you're so interesting in what you're speaking about. But sorry, you were talking about when you first got started... Um, the types of um, shit people would try to pull. Yeah, thank God I didn't lose any money. Like, the, the sugaring, I lost time. And then there was mm-hmm. one really sketchy one. And because I'm kinky, I tried um, getting hired as a sub, which is a very bad idea. Yeah. Very, very bad. And that <clears throat> that was, like, a disgusting session. And the guy almost didn't pay me. He was like, oh... Um, this was a trial run. Like, how about you work for me and I can, I can keep you safe. And I have to follow him to the ATM and be like, you're paying me. Right. 
and I got like a bare minimum, which. Oh my goodness! I'm so sorry. Yeah. That. <laughs> professional subbing is a thing. I've known another professional sub, uh-huh. and they. Oh, I don't want to share their story because that doesn't oh. seem fair to them. But suffice it to say, nothing specifically bad happened to them. Mm-hmm. But they were at an agency that did professional subbing, okay. and something really bad happened to one of the other subs. Oh, and no. then the agency just dissolved. The agency was just like, I can't ethically keep running this. Um, yeah, when you're giving up that kind of power to even, a stranger. Even with like cameras and support, it was like, when something happens... How do you go to the police? You can't you can't mm-hmm. go to the police and say we've been running an illegal um, brothel essentially. Yeah. Like you can't say that. I mean, it is illegal to hurt sex workers. Yeah, it's actually a thing. It's also illegal to make money off of them, which is why the agency was the not agency incentivized. The agency couldn't do it. That's right. So the the but the sub the sub in question just wanted to never have anything to do with it again. Mm. So they didn't want to do anything about it, which was why the agency was like we didn't realize we were vulnerable to this kind of thing. So we're just going to dissolve. Like it's not going to, we're not going to be a thing anymore. And like agencies are sketchy. Like I just went to pace for a photography class and one of the girls, uh, or I would say woman, I guess Mm -hmm. one of the women were, she was helping a friend go independent because the agency had kept the woman like, they wouldn't let her leave. Oh, no. So she was doing sex work for her shift, and then they wouldn't let her leave after her shift, and then they gave her blow? I don't know what blow is. I think it's cocaine, right? Cocaine? Yeah. So that she would stay up and have more sex and work more. That's kind of fucked. Like, she chose to have blow? I don't know. Like, I have no idea. That doesn't sound It just sounded really exploit... Yeah, it sounds super exploitative. And, like, that agency has... Like, there's... A number of girls that were talking about some agency that was really bad, and then they left after two days. Oh, no. Well, and So things like that happen. This is the thing with having sex work be illegal. Like, even if the work itself isn't quote-unquote illegal, it's just as bad to have everything surrounding the industry be illegal, because mm-hmm. agencies can't get enforcement. Like, not having access to legal services is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, not being able to adequately screen your clients and have the deterrent that what they're doing is illegal. Because you want to, like, the... Yeah, I'm preaching the converted. But having the the simultaneous issue of, like, you don't want to punish your good clients and you want there to be a deterrent for clients who don't want to be your clients. That's really fucking hard. Yeah, like, the law that makes it so sex work for the workers is legal, but everyone else is illegal, it just doesn't work. No. It's like nobody wants to give out their name. I don't know who my clients are. Right. I can't report my agency if it's if they're doing something bad. Right. I mean, I lucked out. This agency's amazing. They have such a good reputation. They respect the girls. Like we get into com- like I complain to them about the fact they haven't filled up the coffee machine in a month. Like that's that's my main problem. That's <laughs> and I'm great. like and they're take they're two guys taking care of a bunch of studios and I'm like, "Guys, this is disgusting. Can you please clean?" And I think that's just the the, the woman in me being like, guys, <laughs> like their level of clean is not up to my level of clean. <laughs> I see. I see. But, yeah. but then that also ties into, do they hire cleaners? And like, to what extent does that represent they, a danger to their business? They, they don't hire cleaners. hire cleaners. I mean, we're all in it for the money, right? Well, but even that, like cleaners aren't expensive. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger issue is like, what if the cleaners report us kind of thing? Right. I think that might be why. Yeah. Because I don't think they would care about hiring cleaners. No. Like, I don't think that would be their no. biggest concern. 
No, and the nice thing about the agency is that if one girl says, okay, this client is, like, I don't like him, there's something that's going on. They just don't see the client. They don't, they don't see the client and none of the other girls see the client. Right. That's great. Mm-hmm. It's such a good policy. If mm-hmm. you if you upset one of our staff, we won't see you as a client. Right? It's really that simple. And like the agency is always on our side, mm-hmm. which is really nice. It's That's like fantastic. If one of the, and because there's so much demand, we're such a good agency, mm-hmm. they just cut them out. Yeah. Right? Like no questions asked. I'm sorry yeah. you had this experience. Done. Yeah. It, it really is that simple. Mm-hmm. I mean... I'm all for restorative justice and trying to make sure that everyone feels include and included and that there isn't disposability, but the, the reality of trying to work in such a confined space where everything's illegal and there's no way to protect yourself is that's one of the only ways to really protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's also just like a great policy for, for making sure clients know that, yeah, they're not going to get reported, no one will know their name, but they're never going to come back to the agency again. Yeah. And I think that's as big a deterrent. Yeah, it's it's very much, and the more guys are disrespectful, mm-hmm. or the the more the culture is to be disrespectful for sex workers, mm-hmm. the higher we're gonna charge, and the more selective we are about our clients. Absolutely, it's like you're gonna lose either way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, be respectful, and everyone has a great time. Yeah, and there are gonna be people who, like yourself, genuinely enjoy doing sex work that feel fed Mm -hmm. by that and for whom that's a service you're happy to exchange for for monetary um sustenance i guess (laughs) because i don't want to say monetary gain even because like you said you're not necessarily making more than you would have in your junior engineering job no but you're living like a much more relaxed lifestyle it's just so much healthier yeah yeah i really appreciate that (laughs) um it's interesting. The more that I've spoken to you, the more I start seeing stigma in the questions that, that I originally <laughs> wrote. Um, because you were talking about how stigmatizing it is for people to ask you, like, do your parents know or do your family or friends know? And they yeah. ask in, like, this really concerned tone. I'm I'm curious to talk about stigma in families and if there's a cultural lens, though. Like, do you feel like your family would stigmatize you more because of a cultural lens or do you feel like it's just stigmatized everywhere in every culture? Mm. I think, I think the Western world, at least the bubble that we're in, in the West coast, yes, it's very easy to accept it as work. There's a general like liberal view of like, Hey, you're not hurting anyone. So do whatever you want. Right. If it's consensual, it's okay. Yeah. And a lot of the ancient civilizations, there's so much tradition. There's so many like different, um, there's an expectation of a certain way of life. Yes. And that, that can be hard. Right. And also like, there's just a way where they don't get it. Right. Right. For, for my parents, it's so completely out of their experience that sex work can be a positive thing. And then all that work to have to look at it and question all of their viewpoints to accept it as positive. It's something that I think it, there's so much energy that would be involved that I'm not sure if they would be able to. Right, right. And and that's also like there's a... That's my uncertainty, right? Like, I haven't come out to my parents, and I don't know what their reactions are. I'm I'm right. extrapolating from my experiences growing up as a child with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just made a face. <laughs> no, that's totally fair. 
Just kind of a like. <laughs> that might have been like the inner kitty coming out. <laughs> Are you comfortable talking about that? Of identifying yeah. as a kitty and all of that? Sure. Awesome. Um, I'm curious, just as an aside, like when that sort of became clear to you, like that you were like, you know, I think today I'm going to identify as more of a cat. Oh, <laughs> I think, I don't know. Gosh. I mean, my community is just a bunch of kinky cats. Right. And I've always loved cats as a child. And then when I started seeing other people dress up as different animals, I put the cat ears on. I'm like, this is me. (laughs) (laughs) This is me. (laughs) This is not changing. This was supposed to be here all along. (laughs) Awesome. I guess, like my friends talk about... um, body dysphoria body dysphoria and yeah. sometimes there's a way like and i'll i'll have my my cat ears on and even when i don't have them on my friends will be like you always have your cat ears on i'm like oh, yeah. that, that's adorable. <laughs> i appreciate that i appreciate that <laughs> right so oh that was the next question um not about cat ears but about whether or not <laughs> culture plays a role interesting yeah. so what what do you think you've learned in being essentially a sex work professional? What do you think, what skills do you think you've learned? How are you better equipped for life as a person who's done this work? Um, I think, like for me, I know that I'm a people person. I think mm-hmm. I would have been very successful in psychology or some kind of therapy. Like I love people and I'm very perceptive about different emotions that they're expressing and that has been I guess enriched by my sex work. There's a way where a person will come in and I'll look at them and I'm like, "What are you looking for?" Right. And I know almost immediately, are they are they looking for a connection? Are they looking for um, someone just to listen to them? Are they looking just to like, they're, they're really horny and they just need it to stop? Or are they like looking for a pick me up before they go to work? Um, are they looking to, you know, not have those urges there so that they can connect with women when they're on a date? Right. Like, and there is a difference too, between masturbation and having sex with someone. mm -hmm. It's a different sexual experience and it meets different needs, Mm -hmm. whether it's a conscious physical, like, oh, this, I orgasm differently when I'm with someone, which is the case for me, or whether it's something more subtle, like I have really intense needs for validation and feeling okay as a person. Mm -hmm. And when you have sex with someone, you feel externally validated. Oh, I've been chosen. I've been told that I'm okay as a person. Having those needs met can be really essential, even critical to one's psychology. Obviously, that's not ideal um at least for me i don't think it's ideal to have needs that are that are so critical to my mental well-being but i've also been a younger human as hard as that is to believe and i remember when it was pretty critical to my sense of self-esteem to feel wanted to feel desired and i can understand how especially if you've gone five or ten years without that Mm -hmm. to have that experience whether it's a one-off or whether it's a relationship for a few months where you're paying someone that can be incredibly reinvigorating. And there's even studies that have talked about testosterone levels in men and how just being around someone really desirable and like that can be huge in picking up your testosterone levels again. And that can be important in your health. 
Like, I have older men who come in, and I think that's in the same line of they they want to keep the body healthy, they want to feel those desires and connect mm-hmm. with somebody. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there's just so many different kinds of people that come through. Mm-hmm. It must be interesting chatting with all those different humans and just like... Oh, interesting. I love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also I imagine it makes you a bit of an expert on intimacy because you get to see all of the different kinds of cases. I mean, maybe there's some self-selection in that these are people that are willing to pay for intimacy Mm -hmm. on some level or pay for something different. Um, But you still get to see a large share of the population in terms of intimacy needs. Like it's a neat marketplace to be in, the marketplace Mm -hmm. for connection, for intimate connection. And... There's also, like, you need to keep in mind that I'm in a very selective niche. Like, I only go, um, the the people who come in are usually around, like, 30s to 40s businessmen in the downtown side. Fair enough. Right, who come in during the lunch break or, like, before work or after work. Mm -hmm. And um, there's only so much intimacy you can do in like half an hour to an hour. Actually, I like I love my half half an hour ones because. There is a very low amount of emotional work. Right. Versus an hour where it's like I'm talking to them, I'm like getting to know them. and Right. Yeah, it's different. It's it's quite different. You'd be surprised at how much an hour, like half an hour changes the whole session. I can totally see how the energy would shift if you mm-hmm. have more time and it's a little more slowly paced. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm a little lost right now. <laughs> That's okay. Um, the next question is, does it enrich you or grow you as a person? Um, but I want to talk about the other question. Yeah, let's do it. Um, um, are you like better equipped? Um, about what I've learned about sex work. Sure. I'm just trying to think. I think there's also just a higher higher tolerance for, for people. There's a kind of like, oh, we're all human. Mm. that I love my work for there's a kind of like wow you are like your story is beautiful and like I I very much categorize my sex work separate from my relationships right people are like well how do you have sex with people that you're not attracted to sure and that's not it's not the thing right right it's it's a service that I provide for people right and like the pleasure is great and I can fall into the pleasure. Yeah. And yeah, like the attractiveness, like it doesn't really matter after a while. And like for some people, it do- it matters less just in general. Right. And you're always going to run into people who are, you know, either super, super pansexual or you're going to run into people where maybe they're demisexual and mm-hmm. it's just sex is never about being really attracted to someone and Mm -hmm. maybe there's always been a service element and all of a sudden they're getting paid for that service. Mm -hmm. So there's like totally different types of humans. I imagine that get involved in sex work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love my work. I'm glad you like (laughs) it so much. That's great. So you do find it enriching then like clearly it's like life affirming and makes you feel closer to other humans. Like I go from like very deep conversations about Asian culture and Asian experience from (laughs) men uh, to, no, you should wait before you get your phone because in November, the new iPhone's coming out. Thank you so much. That is something, like, I'm not plugged into. You're like, that's a useful piece of information. (laughs) Useful life tip. (laughs) Really glad I got that. (laughs) I'm sure some people would find other ways to get their tech advice, but (laughs) I appreciate that that's a benefit of sex work for you. There's just, like, so many different, like, life perspectives that come through. 
you know, and and like the little gems that come out of it. Mm-hmm. I'll have like older men. There's one older man that came in, and he was just like, you know, you're gonna do so well in life. You know, you're you're gonna graduate. And so my work, I play a few years younger, and I'm still in school, whereas right. now I'm not. And he's like, you're gonna graduate without any student loans. You like, you speak so many languages, and like you're gonna do you're gonna do so well. It's it's <laughs> interesting that the perception there is that sex work is temporary, and that what you want to be doing <laughs> is the horrific engineering job where you were like you were like anything but this. <laughs> But the perception is like that you're doing something almost awful or that you're doing something that isn't desired and that someday, you know, you're going to do well. You're going to graduate from this almost from this lifestyle into something better. Um, I think so. There's a way where the, the clients that come in, they don't really have the the stigma view of sex work. Oh, that's really good. Um, and a lot of them come in with the respect of these are young women who are going to start off really well in life because because we have the money in the beginning. You know how compounding right, is right. so powerful when it you're is. young and they're like, "Wow, like these girls get it." And then from there they they like sometimes they'll give me advice about different things that they've experienced in life and um like it's just really lovely. Awesome. Mhm. I'm, like, trying to figure out whether I want to make the observation that, like, the Asian half of me is, like, compounding is so good when you're young. (laughs) (laughs) There's, like, that little, like, and I'm, like, is this a racist joke? I'm, like, should I make a racist joke? It's probably not great modeling, but I feel like I can get away with this. Also, it made me chuckle a little. The way they were, like, compounding is so powerful when you're young. Uh Just look (laughs) at China. Exactly. My Indian mom completely agrees. Right. So I love your discussion of the intimacy you experience, not just with your clients, but with people as a whole and the way that ties into tolerance of just being like, you know, on some level, this is just a person with needs, like being able to bring it back to that in just seeing so many different kinds of people come to a really vulnerable place sometimes with mm-hmm. you. Um, I mean, touch itself is just such a basic need that a lot of mm-hmm. men in the conventional society don't have. I've, right heard from a partner how for him when he was dating monogamously his girlfriend was his touch world right like outside of handshakes he like didn't get hugs he didn't Mm -hmm. get touch and if touch is your main love language imagine how it is to go through that world yeah absolutely i also think it provides a model for emotional labor as well if touch is your love language and you only get touch with your one monogamous intimate partner, all of a sudden that person becomes so essential to you. Mm -hmm. And then you start relying on that person for everything intimacy related. And that can burn relationships out, especially if you're going through a really stressful period. My feelings are that I got significantly healthier when I started looking at intimacy elsewhere, not in a non-monogamous sense necessarily, but even just having more friends, Mm -hmm. just getting more friends that I could talk to. And at first, all of my friends were pretty much women. Like I didn't make good friendships with men. Um, And I guess I became aware of how much men are socialized to rely on women for emotional support Mm. and for any kind of emotional labor. And that was a double whammy, because not only was I looking for emotional labor in female friends, but all of my male friends were not willing to provide emotional labor Mm. because they weren't socialized to do that work. 
So it took some pretty interesting finagling of trying to find specific men that were willing to do specific kinds of emotional labor and like positioning myself as a friend that did provide emotional labor because I've always done emotional labor for my friends since Mm -hmm. even when I was very young. I've, I've like, I mean, I haven't always been the best listener. Um, And when I was really young and really socialized as a typical guy, I would offer advice instead of listening oh, oh boy. which is not the same and it's not, <laughs> it's <helpful>. not the same <laughs> but at a certain point i learned to start speaking from and i'm still working on this one i acknowledge <laughs> but mostly start speaking from my own lived experience and being really clear that when i'm talking about things that work i'm talking about things that have worked for me specifically in my life situation so that when i'm like oh, hey, this thing works really well. I'm not saying it works really well for you. I'm saying, well, in my lived experience, I've found this thing has worked. Mm -hmm. And even just qualifying my language more, which to be honest, I have to credit Piper with. Piper worked really hard on that (laughs) with me and it was incredibly important and I love them. And they're so, I have a fond place in my heart for them today. You know, it doesn't matter if you're not in a relationship with someone in a quote unquote intimate sense. There's something about partners that can stay with you oh, in your for heart sure. for many, 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 many Like, I have years. a best friend. Like, we... I am unfortunately depressingly straight. And she's bisexual. <laughs> Otherwise, like, we would totally be dating. We consider each other partners. And we go to each other for emotional support. And we're always there for each other. We love mm-hmm. each other so much. And... Yeah, like in in polyamorous settings, when they're like, "Oh, who are you dating?" I count her as one of my partners, even right. though we don't have any sexual connection. Right. That's almost like a relationship anarchy approach of saying like intimate partners don't just have to be sexual or no. romantic ones; they can be people you love. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna be so excited when we find a guy that we can both date and it works out. That's kind of adorable, <laughs> where you can just share your partner and just be like, you know, how's the husband doing, as it were. <laughs> that guy um it's okay i'll change his litter on friday (laughs) he's he's gonna either have such a great time or he's gonna have a really shitty time because you're gonna have two beautiful girls calling him on his shit (laughs) that's you know that's that's great i love i love the way you pointed that out because it is true you you do eventually as a guy i i find and probably as a human in general have to own your shit it's important to own your shit and to work on your shit and that's something that I think there's a much more nuanced socialization for humans other than men. Hmm. It's like, and again, I'm not so much speaking from my experience, but I'm speaking from what people have told me. So please correct me if I'm wrong. But I definitely hear a lot of when men receive a message, it's be a lot of this. Hmm. A lot of the time when other humans receive a message, it's be a lot of this, but not too much. Right. There's that extra nuance that comes into it. So it's easier to feel like, oh, I have to watch out for my shit. Almost to a neurotic or unhealthy place of, I just feel so insecure because nothing I do is ever right because mm-hmm. I'm always too much or too little of something. Whereas men typically receive the message like, be dominant, be aggressive, be take up space, be, be more, all the things. be louder, mm-hmm. be bigger. And they just keep yeah. getting all of these messages pumped towards them. And if anything, there's this insecurity that they can't keep up with this hopeless well of desire that mm. they need to be all of these things more, 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 more. It's really different when you come at that from a more nuanced perspective. Be powerful, but not intimidating. Be, you know, be be heard but not loud be this but not that you get a lot more nuance i think when you start hearing feminine gender like scripts they just tend to be more nuanced and going back to the sex work yes a lot of 
my clients that I really enjoy are the sweet ones, are the shy ones, are the ones who are like they're asking, is this okay? Mm-hmm. Because it, it personally, it makes me feel safe. Yeah. And I can I can check in on them and be like, well, this is okay. And this is totally okay. Like, go for it. Yes. And also, like, I don't like this. Right. right? Whereas some of the dominant men who come in who are like, oh, I'm all that. Um, I don't see a lot of them come into the agency because a lot of the girls have vetoed them out. Right. It's like, if you're not listening to us, yeah. you're not welcome in our space. And I mean, that's kind of true, I think with humans in general. If humans <laughs> don't listen to each other, the humans who don't feel heard or seen eventually mm-hmm. say, I don't want to interact with you. Mm-hmm. And it's nice that even as professionals, you have the discrimination to be able to say, not these clients. And it's important because a lot of people who use our services degrade us. Right. And they see us as something less than human. Mm. Right. So it's that constant fight of like, no, you listen to us and right. you respect us. And that is the way you keep coming back. Right. And a lot of that degradation comes from this misperception that there's something lowly or wrong about what you're doing, that there's something immoral or anti-religious even. <laughs> um, Puritan Christian society. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but ultimately, I think it does come down to an incredibly intimate, vulnerable, almost counseling, but like bodywork, somatic counseling as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. It's um, just connection. Yeah, but it's just... to some extent, it's almost connection therapy, almost. I'm just throwing that out there as like a, it can be taken in that way. There are definitely people that do somatic bodywork mm-hmm. who have sex for money, but also do somatic bodywork. And there is a niche, which isn't the niche you're in, I acknowledge. No. But at the same time, just going and experiencing connection with someone and having it work really well mm-hmm. can be a form of almost therapy. Was I mean, And all things in balance, right? I <laughs> see clients who are dependent on these kind of services. Interesting. To a point where, like, they will be in love with me and they are fantasizing to, like, be my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Or they are just, like, yeah, they, they use it constantly almost every week. And you see... There's a there's a kind of desperation. There's a kind of feel, filling of the hole. Oh, I see. And those are sad. And there's also like there's some guys who come in every few months. And I had I had this really wonderful I think uh, a 23 year old guy. And he's he we were talking about like why we got into this. And he's like you know I really just want to go on dates and not be thinking about having sex with her all the time. And I'm like yes like. This is why I'm in, like, this is one of the reasons I'm in sex work. It's like if men were able to have access to sex, then there would be less coercion. There would be less guilt tripping for other people. I mean, I'm, I'm cautious about, (laughs) about that notion. I appreciate, I appreciate that perspective. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Do you want to finish? No, no, go ahead. I'm, I'm really cautious about the perspective that there would be less coercion if, Mm -hmm. I think, it's just about there being coercion at all. That's a problem. Right. And I think the second that we say men coerce women because, and we offer a list of rationalizations, we're essentially participating in rape culture because we're normalizing mm. rape as a mm-hmm. thing that happens or coercion as a thing that happens based on the set of, oh, well, it's just biology. And I just, I honestly, as a, as a genderqueer individual who was born male, um, who sometimes identifies as a man and has a lot of cis privilege, I just think we can do better as men. Yes. It's it's perfectly fine if one feels quite desperate for sex for a variety of reasons. It is not okay to coerce based on that. Like mm-hmm. it's so as much as I just wanted to sort of like throw that out there that like 
Yes. Very good point. Yeah. It's it's also really good to be able to offer a service, though, where people who feel incredible amounts of pressure have access to some form of release that is non-destructive to anyone. Honestly, just be more open about sex and owning your shit. Absolutely. That's what it comes down to. Be accountable for the shit you do wrong. And accountability doesn't have to look like shame. I don't mm-hmm. think it should ever look like shame. Mm-hmm. It just needs to look like I fucked up. I'm genuinely going to work really hard at not fucking up as badly next time. I'm going to try and be a slightly better version of myself tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That's what accountability looks like to me. It looks like being willing to look someone in the eyes that you harmed in some way, even if you disagree that you intended to harm them, and just be willing to hear them tell their story and accept that that was the experience you gave to them or that Mm -hmm. that was the experience they had with you. It's, it's not about taking responsibility to be blamed or shamed. It's about taking responsibility so that any of the tiny part that you had to play in that, you can own that tiny part and you can get better at that. Mm-hmm. So that the next time you have an interaction with a human, that tiny part isn't there anymore. And then suddenly you stop becoming, you know, people stop accusing you of causing them harm. That's huge. Mm-hmm. But that's accountability. And it's so hard for us to do because we come from this highly stigmatized, highly shame-based culture. And if we just shamed people less for causing harm and treated people more like people that just need to be accountable and own their shit, I just think we would do a lot better. Mm-hmm. And one is like, stop shaming people about having sex. Sex is Absolutely. great. Absolutely. And that includes clients who are paying for sex because yeah. it's just a service. It's I had, work. I had a client who literally just believed he was a terrible human being. And I think those clients are the most dangerous ones. Hmm. It's like once people believe they're not good people anymore, they don't subscribe to all the usual social Mm -hmm. etiquette. Mm -hmm. I think, honestly, as much as sometimes they're the nicest people because they feel so guilty, which is, like, awful, they're also sometimes the worst people because they just don't feel pressure to conform. Like, if they Mm. harm you, they're like, this isn't the worst shit I've done. Mm -hmm. And that's a really dark and scary place. Yeah. I mean, I've had a client who came in, and he was married, and he had a very, like, high position in the company and he was talking he came in and he was just like am i a bad person this is the only way i can de-stress at work because like yeah like i love this company i love my work it's really intensive and this has always been the way for me to just relax right and i love my wife so much right and i'm i'm like you are really torn I can't solve all of these moral (laughs) problems for you. I'm just going to sit here and listen (laughs) and be here for you because I think that's what you need right now. Yeah. And I I hope you come back. And I also understand if you don't come back because this is something you need to figure out. Yeah. And it sounds pretty unethical from his perspective. Yeah. Ultimately, you're just providing a service. Yeah. I am just here for what you need me to do. Yeah. And you have to respect the autonomy of individuals. Mm Mm-hmm. Although I really don't condone people cheating. As, like, a non-monogamous person especially, mm-hmm. I feel like there's so much stigma against non-monogamous folks because monogamous folks think they're just cheating, mm-hmm. which is a very reductive to say the least. I have a friend who does central massage who refuses any client who is married and sure. asking for her services. And I really respect sure. that. And yep. that's definitely an ethical thing that I'm going to be thinking about when I go independent. Right. Well, because that's what I was thinking about, um, like, the fact that, you folks that work at your agency can veto 
We should. can veto. We don't know who comes in. Right. They they call us and they're like, hey, you have a client that booked in around this time. Right, right. And even if I have regular clients, they usually don't, don't tell you. Don't tell me. Okay. Uh, I think it's just because it's it's a lot of work. Yeah. Like they're juggling three girls. Right. Like one to three girls at a time. Right. And also, they're trying to protect client anonymity yeah. while protecting the safety of their girls. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, but there will definitely be people that ask about, like, why wouldn't you veto someone who's monogamous? But it's, I mean, I'm I'm really on the fence about that one, because on the one hand, it seems like a really good policy. Just veto people who are using your services unethically, but then they'll just stop telling you. And it's like, how far do you pass the buck? Right. Is it actually my responsibility right. as a business owner I mean, as a service provider it's his responsibility it's as ultimately his person. responsibility yeah. and i can help i can create a system where the incentives are yep. no please don't cheat right um in the end it's his relationship yeah and honestly he just needs to be honest with humans and his failure to be respectful and honest and to be in integrity is not your failure no but there is a lot of passing the buck that tends to happen, um, especially because I think personally that women tend to be held to a higher moral standard sometimes mm-hmm. than men. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, <sighs> but it is what it is. <laughs> so I think you've really excellently answered almost all of my questions. You've oh, yay. answered questions about the pros and cons um, of being... Actually, you know what? Do you want to go into a little more detail? Because you were talking about going independent, what the pros and cons are of being independent versus mm. an agency. The agency is great because I just don't have to deal with anything. Right. I just walk in, I um, I do my thing with the clients, and then I walk out. And that was really nice when I was first starting into the agents into the industry, mm-hmm. because like in the beginning I didn't know what was going on, so they dealt with um, advertising, they dealt with talking with the clients, and. Also, they, they owned the studio, which meant I could disappear for a month and, or two months, and I wouldn't have to worry about the rental property. Right. And I hear from a lot of girls how much they deal with, like, bullshit with men. They're like, oh, can you send a picture? Or, like, what are you wearing? And they're like, that's not the point. Are right. you going to hire me or not? Right. And going independent, you keep all the money. Right. That's the main pro. It's... It's quite disheartening, actually, at the end of the night when you're splitting the cash because right. you start off with so much and then you you cut that. And I think it's more of a psychological thing. Right. Right. When we are employees, we don't see how much our companies are making off of us. But when you're a but, girl in an agency, you do. But when you're a contractor in this way where the client is handing you the cash right. and then you visually see how much you earn and right. then you give it away. Yeah. That's, th- yeah, there's a gut feeling there. Yeah. Um, other than that, yeah, going independent is just a lot more details to think about. Right. You have to worry about screening, your own safety, mm-hmm. all of those kinds of things. Like finding a place to rent. Yeah. Um, like they provide all the shampoo, all of uh, like the supplies. Right. And it's all these like tiny little things that I would yeah. rather not be doing. And right. Yeah, having having more time to 
do my have things in my personal life. Right. And for me, like my agency, the cut is forty sixty. Right. And is that forty for you or sixty for you? Sixty for me. Oh, that's not that's not the end of the world. Right. But I it's hear what not you're that saying. bad. It's just enough to keep you interested and involved. And I've talked to a person who owns a film company, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that's what I that's what I do with my employees as well." Right. So. For me, it's worth it. The value there right. is enough that um, I would rather just be at ease and have a regularity to my schedule. And to anyone who thinks that film is less prostitution than <laughs> sex work, <laughs> you should try working a few 18-hour days. And when I say a few, I mean oh, like gosh. 12 to 18-hour days, like 10 to 20 days in a row with no breaks. Like <sighs> some some shooting schedules are absurd, and if you're like behind it all and and the stress level of having anyways clearly i work in entertainment <laughs> yeah stress of, of owning a business not worth it for me right now <laughs> honestly i've run a business before <laughs> and uh yeah it can be really stressful and mm -hmm. i've i haven't done a continuous shift in film like that i've i've thought a lot about it i have a lot of friends who work in film and i work adjacently in anyways it's not important but in entertainment <laughs> Suffice it to say, I've done, like, I've done a 20-hour day before. I've done 12-hour days are, like, not uncommon. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, when you're, even if you're just doing menial lift and move tasks, if you do that for 14 hours, your body gets to a point where walking is hard. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm old at 32, but just walking around in Ugh. steel toes for 14 hours its a lot. is challenging. Like, people sometimes look at us when we're, you know, after 10 hours, and they're like, you know, that person's not moving very quickly. Oh, that's just a lazy union worker. Oh, and it's no. like, well, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm happy to sit down right now, but that doesn't make me lazy. It just means that I've been doing this work a lot. I think what's really interesting is you get like the really elite stars of my industry and they just go on tour. So whenever you have like roadies, they're going to be like on the road in a bus and working all the freaking time, right? Because it's like you're setting up for one show and then you're tearing it down 12 hours later. So you might set up at eight in the morning and then tear it down at two in the morning and then get on a bus to the next place kind oh of thing. Oh my God. Um, and it just like, it just depends. Like it really just depends on your job. Maybe you set up at noon and then mm -hmm. you tear it down at two in the morning or whenever the concert gets out. Yeah, I'm a big supporter of basic income. Yeah, yeah, and I'm a huge supporter of incentivizing people to work really hard. Not that I think that capitalism is necessarily great. Obviously, it can be quite horrific if it's not regulated, and to all of the super pro-capitalists I run into, I'm always like, well, I mean, I think we can agree child labor is terrible, and it's a very capitalist idea. Mm -hmm. So obviously we need some controls. The question is how many controls to make capitalism in some way ethical. And I think a basic income is a really good solution to all of the reasons people complain about welfare it's like well fine we'll just make a basic income so that humans can just be supported in living somewhere and having some minimum standard mm -hmm. and then they have a choice of where they want to work and how they want to spend their time and earn the money for all the extra things in life right and we can always have zones that are not basic income affordable mm -hmm. like for example vancouver would probably not be an area where you could have a lot of people live on basic income mm -hmm. in the same way that pwds and welfare folks can't really survive easily in vancouver not that i necessarily think that's a great thing but i mean obviously ideally that wouldn't be the case like you would be able to live anywhere but i i sort of fall in the middle somewhere where i'm really a huge fan of a lot of socialist ideas and at the same time i'm also a fan of some of the capitalist ideas so like having some incentive to be doing 
a challenging job, for example, in my industry. Like, why would people ever work the number of hours that they work in my industry if there weren't some incentive? So I think the difference between having an ethical basic income and then having incentive to have all of the other stuff as well. Yeah. I I get why a lot of women who are in sex work stay in sex work. It's like after you've done a kind of job that pays well, you can choose your hours, you can choose the people who are coming in. Like, how do you go back to a nine to five or a minimum yeah. wage job? Yeah. And you have all these programs that are trying to support sex workers to go back into the society. Right. And like, a lot of people just don't get it. Yeah. It's like when you have a system set up in that way, it's like, why, why would you go back? Yeah. If you can still make the money, if yeah. you're still able to continue doing the work and it's not harming you. Mm-hmm. And people complain about like, you know, we are, how would you say, we're, we're rolling in money and it's not Which even, is not the case it's, either. It's really not the case. Yeah. It's, it's mainly like lifestyle wise, um, it's, it's just so much easier. Working three days, even if you're doing aftercare, the days mm-hmm. after work, it's not the same as having to go to work. And Your standard commute. of living needs to be higher for yeah. for everyone. I think that's true. I think the standard of living does need to be higher for everyone. But I think the interesting thing is we're both Canadians saying that. Mm-hmm. And if you look at so much of the rest of the world, we're both very savvy in terms of what that might look like. Yeah. Um, in India, where my mom was born, for example, most people live off of two American dollars a day, mm-hmm. which is insane when you think of that and that's not like live off of that's like what they earn when they go to work so for our standard of living for their standard of living to get higher ours likely has to come down from where it is now yeah and i think what it what it sort of lends itself to is a conversation a really frank conversation about like what's ethical mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think that's what most politics comes down to what's ethical mm-hmm I try my best not to have strong opinions, especially on my podcast, because I want to create a space where people can learn about stuff and be willing to explore all these alternative ideas without being lectured at. Yeah. So I think it's easiest to just leave it at that question, like, what's ethical for you? Mm-hmm. So speaking about what's ethical, the last question I have is, how could society better empower you and keep everybody in the sex economy, consensual sex work or otherwise, safer? I know you mentioned New Zealand before. Did you want to speak more to that? Um, a lot of the safety work that we need to do is political, mm-hmm. right? New Zealand has a great sex work policy because they've worked with sex workers to create some of the laws and some of the regula- regulations. And I don't know very much about that. I've been to conferences where they were there were sex workers who have visited the country and and talked about it. So I personally I I think for us here in Canada, a lot of the fight is stigma. A lot of the fight is simply SDI stigma and working through all of the numbers and looking at herpes, looking at chlamydia, gonorrhea, and seeing which ones. Like we we have and, and I don't want to go I don't know how much in your podcast you go into STI stigma. We can we can talk about STI stigma if you'd like. Uh, I mean, I always want to be cautious to note that there are going to be those people with chronic pain and there are going to be yeah. those people with special medical conditions where STIs can actually be pretty terrible. 
Mm-hmm. Having said that, do I think the majority of people have a really awful experience of STIs? I would say the stigma is worse than the stigma disease. Stigma is a lot worse. Depending on what you have, but even then, like HPV is like it's just it's so treatable. Mm-hmm. It's so incredibly treatable <laughs> and it's vaccinatable. It's it's almost it's not a non-issue, but it's almost a non-issue. Herpes is a non-issue and like, and especially in terms of like the fact that we can treat it now. We have drugs that essentially, you know, make it fairly unlikely, even if you have a lifetime partner or, I don't want to say that, but if you have a regular partner that you sleep with on a regular basis, if you're using protection and you're medicated, like the chance of you transmitting herpes is quite, quite, quite low. Mm -hmm. And so many of us have herpes and don't have symptoms. That's true. Like 80% of people who have herpes don't have symptoms of it. Yeah. And we only give shit to the people who have symptoms. Yeah. When really, I mean, granted, you're only, you can only transmit the disease if you have an active, if you're shedding virions. Yeah, yeah, if you're shedding virions. So typically that means symptoms. Typically. Sometimes... Sometimes um, people who don't have symptoms can still shed that yes, and give it to other people. That's true. If they're about to have an outbreak, they'll sometimes feel a tingle. And mm-hmm. I know this because I have the oral strain of herpes, which mm-hmm. most people know is cold sores. So if you have cold sores, um, actually, there's a lot of different kinds of herpes. There's that, two. Well, no, I mean the herpes strain of virus. We just call it something herpes else. Herpes one and herpes two. And then there's like three, four, five, six, seven, eight, <laughs> which, <there> which, <laughs> which we don't consider herpes. Oh we just call them different things, but it's still the herpes virus. Uh, um, I want to look it up now because I want to give accurate information. Honestly, it's just ridiculous. Why do we give um, so much stigma to people who have a cold sore down there? And then we don't really care for people who have cold sores up in their mouth, except, oh, hey, don't drink out of the same glass as me. Yeah, so there's there's obviously herpes 1 and 2. Those are the common ones. Um, but there are other strains of the herpes family, um, if you look at the virology. But I'm trying to find all of the different kinds, and all I'm finding on the internet right now is a metric butt-ton of research on HSV 1 and 2. It's like they don't even test for herpes unless you have the symptoms. Right, because they can't. Like, what do you test for currently? There's just, there's, it's like, most likely the person who you are testing has herpes either as a cold sore or down there mm-hmm. i think it, like if you count both herpes one and herpes two one out of four people have it i apologize if i'm not being super present I'm <laughs> he's on his phone i think it's rubella that's also herpes but i'm trying to figure out like <sighs> and gonorrhea and chlamydia are both you, you just take some antibiotics and they're gone. The only things you want to worry about is hepatitis C and HIV, and they're both blood transmitted or feces transmitted. Here we go. So herpes, herpes virus. So if you're not talking about herpes simplex, because herpes simplex has one and two, there are also different kinds of herpes virus. For example, there's varicella zoster, there's Epstein-Barr, which causes mono, there's cytomegalovirus, um, there's human herpes virus 6A and B, there's human herpes virus 7, um, Kaposi's sarcoma-associated herpes virus, that one is likely to cause cancer, and um, actually one of my friends died of a cancer that was caused almost certainly by uh, a herpes virus infection, an Epstein-Barr virus. He had mono as a child, and very quickly thereafter had a certain type of leukemia 
oh, um, wow. which he beat into remission. And then when he turned 30 um, ish, it came a, back. It came back. Oh, and I'm sorry. the thing was, it wasn't even that it would have been impossible to deal with. It's that he literally had flu like symptoms near Christmas mm -hmm. and 20, like less than 28 days later, he was dead. Wow. So that's like we scary. didn't even we didn't even know that his cancer was back because he just had flu like symptoms. Hmm. And it was like a solid two weeks of like dealing with the flu and fever before we went to hospital and then they didn't know what was wrong with him because he'd had less than two weeks of flu like symptoms. It took like a week and a half to figure it out and then it was just like he died from complications. Hmm. Anyways, that was really tough for me, but the point I'm making is like Infections suck, and for some reason we stigmatize infections of the genitals. Like, if you get chlamydia or gonorrhea, it's a fucking bacterial infection, people. You can treat it with an antibiotic. Like, yep. it's not that different from, like, I have, a, I have a cough from a bacterial infection, except you just, you have a cunt cough, or you have a dick cough. <laughs> like, basically, you just have, like, the common cold of the junk. Yes. <laughs> it's not ideal, but, like, it's treatable, and you don't need to stigmatize it so heavily. No, you don't. Um, oh, what's that article? I'll, I'll send you the article sure. that somebody, I think, who was it, Manson, that wrote about he created the score of if you have a number of partners how likely is it for you to get an sdi oh goodness okay so great because um a lot of us don't realize like these these things it's like hiv i was calculating because that was the one i was sure. worried about right sure. people are always like oh are you taking anti like anti medicine or something yeah. like that yeah and for my work 3 days a week and if i see clients every one of them are different so if I see 15 people a week, it'll take me two years before I get into contact with somebody who has HIV in Vancouver. That's amazing. And that's not even saying if it's transmittable because right. we're using a condom. We're not having sex in a way where there is blood right. contact. Right. Or fluids contact even. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it can be transmitted by fluids for sure. Mm -hmm. Not just blood. Mm -hmm. um, but PrEP so also exists as well. And for those who don't know... It's essentially like a prophylactic HIV treatment where you take all the medications that manage the incubation and spreading of HIV from your cells to other cells in your body, and you just take it prophylactically. So basically, if you come into contact with HIV, you HIV won't be able to replicate in your body, so your body can more easily deal with it. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not a thing for us. And if, you're, if you currently have an HIV infection and you're being treated with PrEP, you can get to a place where you're not infectious. Mm -hmm. They've now said that if the virus is not detectable in your body, it is not transmissible and the two things are equal. Mm -hmm. So if a person is HIV positive and then goes on PrEP and takes their drug cocktail and gets to a place where they aren't really showing any virions, they're not infectious anymore. For all intents and purposes, except for discontinuing medication, they don't have HIV. Obviously, if they discontinue medication, it's theoretically possible that some small amount somewhere in their body could replicate again and they could show counts of the virus. So it's not curable in, in some senses, but you can absolutely treat it and you can get to a place where you're not infectious. At least that's my understanding. Yes. I'm not an expert in these things, but so I have like a fair amount of Fight SDI stigma. Yeah, because like... Gosh darn it, people come down with a cunt cold. And then the less we have of SDI stigma, that'll directly translate translate into less of a sex work stigma. Right. Yep. Yep. 
people have a lot of stigma sometimes about pansexuals or bisexuals or sex workers, anyone that they view to be these horrific disease carriers, but the diseases aren't really that bad for most of the population. Again, I'm throwing in there, there's a caveat for people who do suffer a lot with some of these diseases. For example, <clears throat> you're going to run into people for whom cold sores are really bad. Mm -hmm. You're going to run into people like my friend who can literally die from complications from mono. Um, mono also increases risk of getting... Um, I believe it's multiple sclerosis, or at mm. the very least, the two things are correlated. I can't say that there's an increase in risk, but they're correlated. So what that comes down to is disease sucks if you're a human being, and it's going to suck whether it's sexual disease or not, and there are always going to be some people who suffer enormously, and there are going to be a lot of people who don't really. Like, the flu virus is a perfect example of a really horrific virus that kills a lot of people, but when your friend gets the flu, you don't throw a huge fit about this person's a disease carrier, I'm, I got the flu because of you, I hate you, you're not involved in my life anymore, and yet people have those reactions around sexually transmitted diseases. But the flu kills a lot of people. <laughs> it's, it's a really horrible virus. So I guess that's all I would say is just, yes, these diseases can be bad in a small number of cases, but that's not the usual experience. Um, Having said that, I've only really had HPV. I only had a wart once. It was mm -hmm. treated with one visit to a doctor. It was in a condom-protected area. Long story. Um, so the so so the doctor literally said, like, so long as I was really careful to wash my hands and really careful with how I put a condom on, that it would be perfectly safe to have sex even while even if I hadn't mm -hmm. immediately gotten it treated. Um, really, yeah. it just came down to really good hygiene, and I think. I think there's an element of STI prevention that really does come down to just like washing your hands, knowing how to use protection really well, mm -hmm. and just being really mindful. If you put a condom on backwards, don't put it on forwards. And <laughs> sex. Just throw the condom out, get a new condom that you have not touched, and put it on forwards. Because if you put a condom on backwards, friends, and you're not putting it on, even if you're putting it on a plastic dick, like if there's been any chance of contact with that, and there could be something on the dick even if it's just been used and washed really well like don't put condoms on twice like as once a condom has touched a surface consider it contaminated and if you're holding the condom with your hand while you put it on what have you been touching with your hand because if you've been touching yourself before you do that you have now contaminated that condom mm -hmm. and you should wash your hands before you put the condom on it's like little stuff like that that people mess up on mm -hmm. i think i think protection that we have today is extremely good and especially what we have access to here yes is extremely good i mean like the fact that testing is free and all the treatments are free it's amazing we're so privileged we are so privileged and like i've been working for almost a year and a half now I have not gotten an STI from any of my clients I think mm -hmm. they're more scared about getting an STI from you from me right. and then they do all of their testing and then I get tested every three months because right. of the windows that's the yep. that's the closest I will want to sure and then well and yeah. you have to you there has to be a period um for incubation as well so like exactly. typically you have to wait after an experience for a couple weeks at least anyway well, i'm constantly having sex right. right right so i think there's a few of them that have a three-month window sure and then there's a few like, like gonorrhea and chlamydia that are two-week windows right um do you know which ones have a three-month window because i get tested every three months anyway just because i'm like mm -hmm. i don't know i'm unnecessarily concerned like i could get tested every six months and it would probably be perfectly fine i think most medical professionals would agree with me that six months is a very reasonable testing window for someone non-monogamous like myself yeah i have protected sex with all but one of my partners like it's 
I'm, I'm an incredibly safe person. I have plenty of monogamous friends that have had more STIs than I have. Mm-hmm just because of the ways they choose to engage in sex. And there's no shame around that because again, they treated their STIs very easily. Mm -hmm. Wasn't a big deal. Um, I have plenty of monogamous friends that have had HPV. Mm -hmm. I've had monogamous friends that have had multiple infections of chlamydia or gonorrhea. I've never been infected with those. It just doesn't translate to say this person's non-monogamous or this person's a sex worker or this person is pansexual. Mm -hmm. That doesn't translate to having STIs. And even if you do get STIs, there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. It's just an infection. No, I have one friend who's been working for five years and she has not had an STI from any of her clients. Right. Which says a lot about how amazing one agency work can be versus other things. Well, she's independent. Oh, she's independent. That's even more amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that it's really amazing, but it's great. It goes to say like our healthcare system, the education system. Yeah. we're pretty well protected with it and it's mainly the sdi stigma that we're fighting now five years as an independent prostitute with no 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 anything no no. any kind of infection yeah that says a lot about how lopsided the stigma is and how it's not grounded in any sort of fact really Mm -hmm. yeah wow so the I have a last question after my last question, um, <laughs> which is about consulting. Um, you mentioned that there were people who consulted for independence, and I was wondering if you wanted to do a quick plug for them or if you just wanted to throw their info in the description, something like consulting that. Consulting um, for, for independent um, sex workers. So if there's any of my friends... Uh, no, you were talking about at a conference you went and mentioned that you'd seen educators that uh, do consulting for yes. people who want to go independent. So I want to check in with them to see if they're Legit. okay with okay. this podcast. Sure. Um, the people I talked to were Aurora and Key, and okay. they do central massage, and they're, I would consider them sex activists because they're yeah. they're fully out and they're always talking about it. They do these wonderful workshops that I workshops that I haven't been to. Sure. Um, I've heard good things about that teach you all about central massage and the business side of it. Right. And I'm going to be going and doing a life coaching with Aurora so that I can figure out more about what I want to do with it going independent. Awesome. That's fantastic. They're really awesome people. And if you're listening to this, I have gotten permission (laughs) and these people are okay with it. And if you're listening to this and you are those humans and you are not okay with this, you can always contact me and I'm very happy to edit or take down the podcast. It's that simple. I am consent-focused in publishing. And if you have questions about sex work, if you're considering it, if you're considering going independent or going with an agency, you can always contact me, and i love to tell you more about it and help you out, because we are all here for each other. Absolutely. Selena, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye! So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or go straight to the Patreon group at patreon.com slash victorsalmon. Both are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com, so what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Attribution. The intro music was Unbury Your Heart by Siobhan Decay, and the outro music was Dancing with Fire by Daniel Birch. Disclaimer. I apologize in advance if something I say discriminates against some folks or is highly problematic. I'm open to being called in. I'll probably look back in future and see something I'm not proud of. I'm not perfect. I'm certainly trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. And along that line, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land on which I live and play, the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories, specifically those of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, 